It was intended for the human to support the machine, the machine to support the human. And AI means something different to anybody you talk to, which is wild. This is AI or die. Hey everybody, welcome to AI or Die episode 12. It is officially Valentine's Day, so we welcome you for listening. Thanks for joining as usual. We're going to have our guest, uh, Nicolay, join a little bit later. But as usual, at the top, we're going to get into where we're at, what we're doing, what's the latest in Nick, Reagan, and Brendan's life, along with Aligning AI. We've got some news and trends we want to talk about as well, and then we'll work, welcome our guests in about 20 to 30 minutes or so. So, hello, Reagan. Hey, Brendan. Good morning. Happy Valentine's Day. How are you guys doing? What's going on in your life? Doing great. Living the dream. Last week, John Crone was in town from the Super Data Science Podcast, and he lives in New York, and he's got an incredible podcast. If you've never listened to it, check it out. He was in town because there was a new brewery that opened in Columbus, Ohio, called Species X, that worked on an AI-based beer with him. They collabed on it for like a year, and finally the brewery opened, and we all got to go and try this AI influenced beer. And it was a lager. It was very good. I like the Pilsners and the lagers and anything that's like not hoppy or like super light. And it was great. It was super good. Yeah. So was it like a never been done before recipe? Like what about AI being involved in the making process, like made it special in some way? Yeah. I don't know all the details, but John said something about, you know, that, that the brewmaster Bo, I believe that's his name. He looked at all the beers that he had brewed and came up with a ton of attributes about each of them. And I'm not quite sure how, what he used as the like target for this model, but maybe it was like a ranking of how good the beer was or something, like maybe some arbitrary ranking. But regardless, it kind of gave him its suggestion on how to brew a beer or I don't know how to brew beer. So I'm going to butcher this, but like maybe ingredients or whatever. And he said that it was not very like normal. Like it was Mm. super abnormal with what it was suggesting, but he was like, well, it's technically and feasibly, you know, possible. So I'm going to do it and see what happens. And then he did. And it was really tasty. So I don't know anything about brewing beer, so I can't really give more details than that. Well, I wonder like what's possible, okay, with beer, but also with things like wine or champagne or any of that as well, just in terms of like AI supporting the brewing or the, the overall just ingredients process that goes into it. Yeah, I was telling Reagan, one of our friends did, uh, he figured out his optimal cold brew setup. So he used like steeping, like how long it was steeped for, not steeping is not the right word, it's not tea, but you know what I mean? How long it like sat in the fridge and soaked in all that good coffee flavor. He used different beans and he had his target be his own personal preference from one to 10. And he like tried all the different levels, did the combinations and then ranked them. So it's kind of interesting. I wonder if we can do more like talk about hyper-personalization a lot with AI. I wonder if we can get some of that going on in like the coffee world or other realms. Obviously you need to redo a lot of the manufacturing behind it or how that stuff is made but that could be really cool to have like your own personalized best version of coffee for your taste buds or beer or wine whatever it is yeah when i used to live out in seattle i toured the starbucks headquarters there and they focus a lot with like ai focus on like the customer journey and understanding exactly what they're going to want to order next but i didn't see a lot in terms of like experimentation of ingredients or new drinks in that way so it was just in chicago and i went to the starbucks reserve there Oh, those and got, are cool. 
yeah, like explored that, got some coffee there. It was pretty neat. I don't know if they were particularly experimenting with anything, but I loved the cup I got so much. I brought it home and I'm literally using it. Yeah. It was such a nice cup. <laughs> Obviously seeing John while he was in town, was super fun to do that and mm-hmm. getting to taste AI inspired beer. So that was that's what's new with me. <laughs> Brendan, what's new with you, man? How you been? Oh, I've been good. It's been very busy work these days. A lot of folks doing a lot of AI projects, also a lot of data projects as well. So Work side has been super busy, and then personal side just been working out a lot, hanging out. It's starting to get beautiful here in Barcelona, Spain. So we're kind of in that pre-spring, spring period. So it feels wonderful. Uh, excited to go to the beach and stuff coming up here pretty soon. So got some hiking in over the weekend, just kind of getting out more into the outdoor stuff, which is always a good time. Yeah, you're telling me how, like, when you lived in Denver, like, being outdoors was such a bigger part of your life. So you're trying to, like, figure that out, like, especially getting a car and doing more things like that in Barcelona, too, is what you're really focused on. Yeah, America's is very different because you can jump in your car because you have a car and then you can drive wherever you want to drive here. It's like, take the metro, catch a train. It's nice that there's public transport to get you anywhere you want to go. But that's a different experience of what we're used to, just like jumping on the highway and going in a direction. So definitely adjusting to that. But luckily, the beach is here, and the beach is like beautiful nature right in our backyard, basically. So that's been super great. But definitely excited to get up in the Pyrenees and some of the other bigger mountains here and do some hiking. It's got to be ideal time, too, because tourism doesn't get warmed up until, like, I'm assuming spring break time, Memorial Day time, right? So, like, now's a nice quiet but nice weather time where you're at. Definitely. It's like that optimal, too, where it's not too hot yet. So it's not going to be, you're not going to be boiling on the side of the mountain. So that's a good, good thing. With that, let's get into the news for today. I know I shared a few articles ahead of time. We can get into those. And if there's any other ones that come up too in the meantime, let's get into that. First one is I shared a fact sheet. So Biden-Herod administration announces key AI actions following kind of Biden's landmark executive order of like, we need to get a wrangle on AI. And it seems like really targeted investments related to K-12 education and AI related to hiring more AI talent within the U.S. government and also just having more safety regulations in place for, it doesn't seem like every single AI model out there, but really more of like the high profile, highly impactful machine learning models, really having more of a safety review related to that. And if companies in the U.S. are providing any computational resources to AI models overseas, that having you know, no, no notification of that too. Yeah, I was gonna say I really like this table on here as well. It's talking about the the timeline, the agency, the action that was taken. They've completed all of these steps, which is really fascinating. So you know, convened AI and tech talent task force. I'm just reading off a couple of here. Yeah. Convened an interagency council to coordinate federal agencies use of AI, which is really interesting. Completed risk assessment covering AI's use in every critical infrastructure sector. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like there's a lot of assessments going on right now, a lot of surveying and auditing of how they're using it, how they plan to use it. Kind of really interesting, actually. I wonder if we'll get access to any of that information just to, as you know, citizens to understand what's happening and, and how our government's using AI or how different agencies are leveraging it or what they're doing to help the economy with it. 
especially with the data quality aspects that are peppered in there too. Like one of the last items on the table is like an advisory opinion to highlight the false, incomplete, and old information must not appear in background check reports, including tenant screening as well. So like starting to protect the info privacy and the info quality of U.S. citizens out there who may be impacted like this too. So I thought that was interesting. So important. Everyone always says garbage in, garbage out. And if we start using these AI models and we have poor data quality or data that misrepresents individuals, this is going to be a huge problem. Because there's, I think one thing that people overlook a lot, yeah, there's there's the performance of the model itself, but there's the inaccuracy that happens because of some of the data that it's fed. And so, yes, we're dealing with probabilistic models, right? So they're going to be wrong. However, if we don't have good data behind it, we're in trouble. And a lot of these agencies, government agencies aren't known for having really good, clean data, right? We deal with paper all the time still when we engage with government agencies. So this will be a really interesting and fascinating, maybe push for digitalization for, for data, but we'll see. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, just to see like how much AI is exposing in the underlying kind of digital layers. Right. Cause I don't remember hearing this heavy of a push around controls and regulations for just general data quality before a lot of this AI started up. So I think that's another good thing kind of this fear aspect or this you know safety concern around ai is like creating a lot of other good and other areas inside of like the technology that's underlying a lot of business and a lot of the world today that we're using and i think related to that too when another article i shared the nvidia ceo you know talked about every country needing sovereign ai so he was at this kind of world government summit in the uae and he really spoke to like every country needs to own the production of their own intelligence and then really telling them about, I think this was a really interesting thought that he had, that we talk about including more computer science education in K through 12. The CEO of NVIDIA actually bucked that, saying that, you know, they urge people to study computer science in order to complete it in the information age. It's no longer needed because it's the opposite. It's our job to create computing technologies that nobody has to program and that the programming language is human. So everybody in the world now is a programmer and that is a miracle. Honestly, this is one of the most, this is the revolutionary thing that has happened over the last year, right? Like this is it. When people talk about these like shifts in AI and like what, why now? It's because this shift is happening. We're actually abstracting the deep layers from most people and enabling the next layer of quote unquote developer. I actually saw an article. It's like, should people even learn how to code anymore? And I think part of learning to code that was really useful aside from just like the syntax and things that you could build is the general mentality about problem solving. It was the, the mental framing that you bring to the table when you're programming something that I think is super valuable. It's like, why do we learn math in high school? And I hear that all the time from people. And I'm like, it's literally a way of thinking that you're being taught. You may never use the exact thing you're learning, Uh, But it is a way of thinking. And I think coding does the same thing. So even if we won't need to do that moving forward, and we will be abstracted away from a lot of those layers, that general problem solving and framing and like, figuring out how to build something useful for an end user, I think that still remains. And that's what we're seeing. We've seen a lot more unlock of people who don't know how to code per se, but are building solutions with the developer ecosystem that has been created in AI over the last year and a half. Yeah. And I'd say like a lot of these LLM projects where we're taking these big models and making them very good at a specific task is relying a lot of not only that, you know, 
being able to model the intention or what is really the goal of this thing, but then also being able to bring in our own knowledge. And it's crazy to see the fact that these prompts and a lot of this is really natural language, right? It's just how we talk. It's how we ask questions. It's really teaching this machine how to do what we do. And there might be Python wrapping it to send it to the APIs for these big LLMs, but it's in English, right? Like these are like, these are your instructions in plain language, right? And they can understand that. So I think programming will still be there to wrap it and that'll get more and more automated as programming tends to be. But I think we'll see a lot more push around this prompt engineering, this ability to kind of explain and teach the machine what we want to be doing. Yeah, especially with, you know, 2023 ChatGPT being like one of the fastest growing apps ever, just because of that easy to approach front end where a lot of people can engage with GenAI tools and create GenAI tools with a very low effort and a very quick turnaround just to start to prototype what those look like too. So I think that's fascinating. Couple that with all of the work going into augmented reality with Apple Vision Pro, just really starting to blend the lines of like what we've been used to. I'll say our generation of millennials versus like the next generation, which I have a lot of friends who are high school teachers. They talk a lot about that generation being less about getting under the hood and doing kind of the coding and the problem solving, but more about just expecting the UI to be intuitive and be able to fix it on the surface instead, which I think is a cool shift that's happening. Yeah, I'm excited to see where all of this goes. I mean, like we're, you know, yesterday I was listening to a video that Jamath Palahapitiya uh, posted on on X and, you know, he's one of the the hosts of the All In podcast and he was talking about this on their last episode. So I went over to check it out and he had interviewed Jonathan Ross, who is the founder and CEO of Grok Inc. Um, and it's a company that he had invested in and they, they're basically building custom chips for AI inference. So it's interesting to see a lot of the conversations still happening at the infrastructure level. And he's kind of peeling the layers back on why we need things to have lower latency in order to get that user experience, in order to get adoption. So what he's talking about is the biggest reason we're going to see low adoption on a lot of these co-pilots or solutions that people are building is that it's not natural enough. It's not back and forth. There's no real time you know, interaction. And he's talking about like, you know, 500 milliseconds and them trying to get it down to the response time of a hundred milliseconds and just trying to get to this point where you're having a conversation with that system. And so that's why he's so focused on the infrastructure layer is to try to get that user experience to a point where we see more adoption, where it becomes a little bit more frictionless. And what I thought was interesting is that that latency is what he's basically saying is like a huge barrier or challenge to actually getting more adoption, which is true. I mean, like we spend a lot of time teaching people how to work around the constraints that exist today. And eventually we won't have to do that. Eventually it will get better and people will use it more seamlessly. I think we're still quite a bit off from that. So like there's kind of the tech ecosystem that's trying to make that user experience better. And then there's still a piece of like problem solving that people need to know in order to engage with it. And so to your point, like, I just think that that's going to transform a ton over the next two, three years, and we're going to be in a very different place by then. And he's specifically, you know, Jonathan specifically focused on the infrastructure at inference. So he actually did a demo on the video I highly recommend people check it out, but he's kind of interfacing with this 
like voice bot where, you know, in almost real time, not real time, but almost real time, it is responding and, and talking back to him. And it's pretty impressive what they're building. So just something to keep an eye on if people are looking at kind of the infrastructure piece. As I said, that's interesting too, because like I noticed my personal pattern, I see other people do this with ChatGPT and the other like Gen AI stuff is that you put the prompt in and then you let it kind of run through, right? Like you switch off the tab, you have to go away because it takes a couple of minutes for it to come back. So you can't just like sit there and watch it. I mean, it's nice that they gave you the little, it's spelling itself out or it's like writing everything out live to you. But I do hope to see that kind of like change. I've even been thinking about changing my prompts to be like, hey, quick answer. Like just give me a couple of sentences here because I don't want to sit there while you give me a novel if I'm just looking for a sentence here. So I think increasing that inference speed is like increasing the speed of the internet, right? The faster yeah. it is, the more adoption, the easier it is for people to really integrate it into their day-to-day -day process. And think about what you just said, dude. Can you imagine if we were having this conversation and I was like, please respond in less than 30 seconds. Like, it's so <laughs> funny because it's just not natural for us to yeah. do that. Like, you pick up on the fact that maybe there's you should conclude talking so other people can talk but like these systems don't have that level of context or awareness and so it's really funny that you have to be so insanely explicit about what you want it to do and people are not used to doing that you can already see approaches that they're taking and designing it though where it's like the, the the it'll repeat the question back to you while it's thinking so like they're already applying techniques that humans are doing in job interviews or anything else where if you get a question, sometimes people, while they're thinking about their answer, will repeat the question back or say, oh, that's an interesting question. They're applying that same technique with the models as well, where it repeats it back, gives itself an extra beat or two to put together what its answer is before it provides it in that way. To that's what uh, the demo did yesterday on yeah. that video that I was talking yeah. about. She would go like the she, it would go, hmm, that's a great question. As yes. it's like trying to come up with you know, the That's response right. and do the search and, and get everything together. So very interesting. They found that even doing that just makes it feel like, okay, people will stick around while it's telling you that's an interesting question and gives you the answer instead of just a moment of silence before it gives it. It just, the difference of 100 and 400 milliseconds is insane to me. But in terms of adoption, it seems like using an oven versus a microwave in the same way, where it's like that big of a difference in terms of how quick your stuff's ready and how instant you want it. I threw this one out there, Brendan. I thought you found interesting. The NIH, Natural Institutes of Health, <clears throat> using a machine learning model to basically map out the federally protected waters. It's interesting. So in 1970, they rolled this thing out where it's like, let's say we protect all waters in the United States. Federally, we protect them as clean drinking water that we can basically manage overall. But they never specifically said what waters are covered. They just always ran under the umbrella of all waters in the United States. So that was 1970. Flash forward to today, here we are like 50 years later, they finally put together an ML model, which basically defines by looking at satellite image data and soil data to actually define what are the actual specific waters that are protected instead of just saying all waters generally in that way too. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. that's super interesting. Yeah, I think that's a great application because water is becoming so critical. Like I just saw something the other day that was around vanishing groundwater is becoming more and more of a problem on the east coast as well as like obviously in the west is a huge problem barcelona right now is currently in a drought too so i think this is like anything we can do around better decision making at a large scale which ml helps with will help with a lot of the environmental changes and impacts we're seeing today and really help us make better decisions about how to like allocate resources like water because things right. that we thought were infinite are becoming finite. And I think ML gives us a really kind of objective, holistic view of some of this stuff. So 
love seeing any ML use cases in that environmental space. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I was having a couple of conversations with the folks here in Ohio because a lot of companies, big companies are putting their data centers here. And the reason that they're putting their data centers here is because we have a big water reserve. But with that also comes a need for electricity, like a massive need for electricity. And so if you think about it, like running a full data center, multiple data centers in a state, it's great, but also like we should be very aware (laughs) of like water reserve consumption and electricity. So yeah, I think that's a really good use case as well. Perfect. Well, we're welcoming to the show today, Nico. Nico is coming in from Germany. He's calling in from Munich. And we've been working with Nico. I first met him through the MLOps community, which is a Slack group. Highly recommend for really practical advice. And Nico is very active in that community and a couple others where he's actually going out there answering questions based on what he's seen from real production projects around Gen AI, NLP, LLMs, all the good things. So we've been working with Nico on a couple of projects. He's a great got to work with not only from the architecture side, the engineering side, but he's also got some really solid practical experience uh, taking the business problems and turning them into really effective solutions. So it's been great working with Nico. So thought we'd bring him on the show, talk a little bit about where things are at with Gen AI, what he's seeing, what are you seeing people challenge or struggle with. So welcome to the show, Nico. Thanks. That's quite the pressure you put on me. Like what an intro. Have you practiced it before or is it like just off the top of your mind that's off the top of my mind that's how impressive you are just what i think about you at the core (laughs) that's sweet (laughs) right i'd love to hear about your background like how you got into this space so if you could do just like maybe a little bit of background on you and like how you guys where you're at and and maybe what's most exciting for you and then we can kind of like jump off from there yeah so i studied actually a mix of informatics and business administration and got into AI pretty early. So during my bachelor studies, so during my undergrad and during a hackathon in, I think it was 2019, we organized with OpenAI. I found like GPT-2 for the first time. And since then it was like only LLMs for me or mostly LLMs and diving deeper and deeper. And it all ended in the end, like writing my master thesis on it, on controllable generation with LLMs. Mm -hmm. And that's like nowadays, most of the stuff I'm doing, like as a freelancer, but also with my my company at Eisbach, where we also focus mostly on like time series data, like bio data, Mm -hmm. medical data, but also heavily on like LLM type data. And with that, how do you see a lot of like enterprises actually applying Gen AI? Because I think people are... uh, especially our listeners are really facing, you know, what do we do next? How do we think about Gen AI and applications for our employees and for our customers too? So are there any high level trends you saw emerge in 2023 or looking ahead to this year that you could see a lot more enterprises leveraging Gen AI for? Yeah. So what's different at large between like generative AI and regular AI, that it's way more tangible for most people because anyone can use it. Anyone can interact with it. What makes so many different use cases way easier to grasp and understand and also apply. But this also comes like with a little bit of a downfall that most people have like the really obvious use cases top of mind, which is mostly something in the direction of social media, like formulating different posts for 
Facebook, Twitter, sure. LinkedIn, which is something like it can be done, but I think it's always like hard to implement in the end because it's like so many different opinions. And also like you never can capture the writing style to 100%. A use case I really like to implement with more, most companies is actually information extraction because you can use all of that unstructured data in 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 different documents and different files in the company knowledge base suddenly and that really easily and you can just throw it into a vector database and make it usable you can use llms to make the information information structured through function calling which is always like to make it now actually valuable so you can extract for example the different the different rates from insurance contracts and this is applicable across industries and it's also always a nice starting point because you're creating data assets in the end which you can build further ai use cases which might be more technical on top of yes where a lot of these like pdf documentation like i'm thinking dozens pages or hundreds of page long partner agreements that folks may have where the legal department's like sifting through page by page to find information instead like let's give them a place to basically have that knowledge base and query against it for specific questions related to text within the agreements, basically. Yeah, exactly. And we're That's- seeing a lot of use cases where people in legal or procurement or sales are trying to templatize a lot of the documents that they're used to working with, which is really interesting. So I think there's kind of the information retrieval piece of it, but there's also maybe a structuring piece. Like I've heard a lot of agencies really interested in this request for proposals, right? It, you know, it's pretty standard on how it's structured and there's pretty structured responses. And so because they have that, they want to be able to streamline a lot of the documentation processing, which I think is a really good use case too. Yeah. But this always, for me, it's this at the moment, at least cannot really be done without like at least a human in the loop, especially if we are doing like, real important legal documents or sales documents which are going out to the customer where you always have to double check because since the models are probabilistic you it always can happen that something pops up which doesn't fit with the use case doesn't really fit with the legal clauses you want to address what's really nice a literature i found just recently is from bill inman which is the father of the data warehouse and he is pushing this concept of like textual etl And he's differentiating like documents into like a boilerplate and then like the flexible stuff. And this is something you really can also apply in the reverse sense, not textual ETL, but actually constructing documents again, where you split it up into like the boilerplate stuff, which you pre-fill. And then you already have context around the document in which you can fill it and also anchor the LLM to the surrounding context which makes it easier for the LLM to retrieve the relevant information, but also generate the right tokens, which are more grounded in the actual facts and the stuff it actually has to do. What are some of the other hurdles you're seeing? Because it seems like that is one, the data management upfront to make sure that's formatted correctly. What about like InfoSec concerns with highly confidential info inside of contracts? Or even do you find you have to do a lot of the education side of like, this does do hallucinations and you need to keep an eye on that as more of a reviewer now too. Just curious what other hurdles you're starting to see as yes, we can develop these models and they're a great starting point, but what's hurting adoption at the end of the day in some of these orgs? Yeah. So I think like data governance at large is already an unsolved problem. 
And this was when like it is it was restricted how many people can work with the actual data. And now right. like LLMs increase the access and this introduces even more problems because suddenly way more people can access it. And there's this also like without the relevant knowledge about like data protection, data access rights. And this is something really to look out for. But this is really company internal and it's mostly like about policies, governance, who has access to what, controlling the access to the different types of data, but also sensitizing data, like removing PII before you actually feed it into like an LLM. If you're using GPT-4, for example, in the EU, it isn't allowed to feed personally identifiable information into the OpenAI endpoint. You would have to use the Microsoft Azure one. And even then you shouldn't use PII information only like it should be sensitized. So you have to remove the names, the email addresses, social security numbers and the like. Yeah, there's some interesting companies popping up to help kind of redact personal information or sensitive information from large documents to kind of prep that data to be used in large language models, which are which is really interesting. I think one of them is like private AI and they're out of Canada and they're really, really focused on trying to help organizations try to put a, a work, like a workflow in place where they're removing that sensitive information prior to putting it into a model. Yeah. So been- and then also feeding it back in again with the output. So basically it right. gives it placeholders, which when they placeholders appear again in the output, it's filled back in when it, then the data comes back. Yeah, privacy is I like the number one challenge that I've been seeing with a lot of these organizations. And I think part of it's just education on what areas to be cautious around and which ones not to. So is there kind of like a rule of thumb that you talk through with your customers on privacy and data privacy and like preserving that? Yeah, in the end, it's it depends on the use case. Often if it's if the LLM is used within a tool, within a workflow, you anyhow, you as the programmer or as a developer, you have the control over it. So I can put the controls in place, but if it's like a customer chatbot, if it's like an internal chatbot on top of documentation, this in the end something you have limited control over what the, what the user in the end puts into the tool which the company itself has to address as well. And the only thing we can do in the end is advise them, like what are best practices, how to teach your employees, what to tell them. But this is like such a unsolved problem because I think we all have these, these privacy, like things we had to do at like bigger enterprises where you just were basically clicking through it because they were so boring and mostly also boilerplate. And in the end, I think like the convenience of just feeding everything into it or just throwing a document into it, it's so large that most people won't do it. So you actually have to integrate that into the tool to actually prevent users from doing it. How do you think about that front end for the users? Because earlier on this episode, we talked about especially UX and UI being such a focus to really help with adoption at the end of the day too. How have you seen almost that front end or the engagement point for the end user change just in the past year or so? And and what excites you about what's next related to Gen AI use cases or AI use cases generally? So on the the UI front, I think we got really stuck in like a Mm. chat interface now. 
I think yeah. there are way smarter ways to actually integrate it. So what, for example, Notion is doing that it gives you fixed options on what to do. One I don't really like is, for example, Grammarly, because in my opinion, they could do way more in their tool and they restrict me way too much and it isn't intuitive. So it goes it goes both ways. I think Notion is the best example of how to integrate it well into that tool because it fits mm. into the mental model of the user of how they're using Notion. Because most often you're basically, you're either writing or you're generating lists and it gives you this as options. And also like it, it's basically, it knows its place. It knows what I am doing with Notion or most people are doing with Notions and it basically extends my capabilities. Yeah. And I think most tools just basically try not to slap a chatbot on top of it and don't really think through, hey, what is the actual use case my user has to solve? What do I have to streamline? What can I improve? And for which processes is Gen AI the most suitable? And then focus on this option, nailing in and restricting the user input. Because I think like in most of my apps, I to try to restrict what the user can introduce in randomness on top of the model. Because the model itself is already a source of randomness. If the user gives me garbage input, that's another source. So when I can restrict what the user wants to do, what prompts he's giving to the model, but also what type of inputs, that's always like a benefit. So I always try to f force a structure onto the yeah. user. Yeah, in a way, ChatGPT was like giving everybody Play-Doh, you know, like, go ahead and make whatever you want or do whatever you want. Like, there's no, there's no, like, which is a good thing, right, to some extent, because then people can get creative and build all sorts of things on top of that or, like, come up with ideas or prototype things. And, and then it just leaves a lot to the imagination. However, um, to your point, when we're starting to get more practical about use cases, we are a big advocate for doing what we call decision mapping, which is just like, what decision does the user need to make at what point? And how do we support that decision with the best information and leverage the model to do that? So I think that's a great point. Like everybody's just copy pasting what kind of ChatGPT did by just providing this like interface that, and obviously it's advanced a little bit since then, but you know, it's just to your point, like lots of chat bots when there could be a lot more thought to put into user experience. Yeah. And I think that's something on the second question of Nick, which I completely ignored. What, what is like the trends of Gen AI I'm seeing? Mm -hmm. I think we will see more and more specialized models, which also means it's they're more focused on use cases. So they can restrict the interface more. So I think we will see more and more tools for different use cases in different verticals popping up, which are already integrated into the tools we are using anyhow. So I don't think we will see it for much longer that you have like different chatbots open, but the chatbots are in your tools. They're in Word, they're in Microsoft, they're in VS Code, they're in your different tools and you can use them in there and they streamline your processes. So I don't think like most people will be like me. I have at the moment, I have like four different chatbots open depending on what they're, they're best at. I don't yeah. think this will be like something we will see like so much longer. Your general thoughts on like closed source versus open source models. And if you feel like the open source ecosystem and like Hugging Face is providing a way for people to create more niche or specific models. 
what has been your experience with leveraging that versus like the kind of prepackaged APIs that are available today? I think when it comes to closed stores, it isn't at the level yet of GPT-4. And I think what what open source, the biggest issue is at the moment is the deployment because it's complex to deploy AI models into production, especially such large ones, because you would need an MLOps person which handles the scaling, the loads, the training and improves the model over time. And it's it's like at least one full-time person. And that's most of the time, not enough. And this is the biggest issue I see with open source model being adopted also like across the board in smaller companies. I, I think we will see like more model as a service in the end where the models are fine-tuned for specific use cases. But... I think like the user in the end is always a little bit like expecting still the capabilities of ChatGPT, but with like one capability really enhanced. And I think in open source mm-hmm. model, this isn't possible. When you're fine tuning, there is some catastrophic forgetting always included. So it's losing some general capabilities. And that's what should happen when I'm using a general model. And I think what we would need for that is better routers, which is basically the routers which are basically able to decide, hey, is this a general query or is this like a specific query? And then decide to which model should I go? Should I use the highly specialized open source model which we trained or should I use GPT-4, Gemini or whatever? So it's like an interface to help with that decision of what next tool to go to in that way. That's interesting. Yeah, and that's like... Portkey um, is one company in that space which open source their router. And they, at the moment, they have like a bunch of tools which are focused on like latency, how fast are their responses coming, how costly is it, how complex is the query. And that's already yeah. a good starting point. And I think we will see like routers which are even like more capable, which can decide, hey, on which, which use case is this query addressing and then pipe to the res- uh, responsible model. Yeah, we were just talking about latency as well. Oh, Brennan, go ahead. Yeah, as I was gonna say, this conversation is kind of making me think through because I think the big evolution now is like these big general models, which are really good. It's the chat-based interface because you can ask me anything. It's like when web started, it was, you know, search to go find all these websites, right? And then you see with like mobile apps as well, it kind of evolved into like, I'm not going to Google for the best restaurants. I'm going to go to Yelp, right? Like there became these very specific functionalities, these very specific flows, these very specific data assets underneath them. It really helped you solve for those specific problems. So I'm personally really excited to see how, like you mentioned the routers, the increase in inference, like how that is going to be able to improve these interfaces and experiences for people interacting with them to accomplish very specific jobs. And then I think it gets really interesting of like, how do you find the right place to go, right? So like, how do we know which models to use as a user or who, like, how are we going to interface with that, especially in like, the enterprise landscape where there's so many different SaaS products, so many different tools available. How do we know where to go and how do we know as a user what model is going to help me solve the problem I'm trying to solve? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I heard folks talking about this idea of like, if I want to solve a specific problem on my phone, I have to go look for an app that I know is well-rated and will work well and whatever. And I have to download and install that app onto my phone. And then I have to go into the app. I have to create an account and I've got like, there's all these steps to like trying to accomplish a very specific task 
inside of your phone or like whatever device you're using. And I'm just really excited for these types of models to help maybe redefine what that interface looks like a little bit. <laughs> Cause I feel like that's kind of crazy. Like we just keep from a cybersecurity perspective, we're creating all of these accounts on all of these different apps and all of our passwords and login information. Yeah. And so like, how do we create something that maybe is a little bit further abstracted away from the end user than an app store, you know? And then how do people monetize off of that? I think like there's a lot of UX paradigms that are going to shift. Yeah, exactly. But I think we are also running in the same issue with AI models because there are more and more models popping up. And in the end, how to decide like which model to use or which provider to use if for the foreseeable future, we have rather like multiple, very capable models, which are provided by different close source providers. So I think we have like the same issue now in AI. Like, what tool am I using in the end? And at the moment, it's often like I'm I'm sitting there when I have to do like a fine tuning or deploying like a new open source model. First of all, you have to decide like which open source model do I build it upon, right? And that's another issue. Like in the end, when I'm when I'm implementing it for a client, which is on the one side good for me, on the other side bad for the client. Each model has not the longest lifetime because the space is moving so fast that at the moment you have to like update the model probably every two to three months and mm. most people don't really like expect that maintenance costs because if i even de right. deploy the model it's highly scalable they don't have to do any maintenance like after two or three months like the performance isn't up to date anymore with even like the best closed source models which are out there so i have to like go and retrain which forces me to like hire someone like me again which does the fine tuning again on the data yeah. and it's like the cycle continues in the end related to that how do you see like teams setting up like feedback loops within here as well because we talked about what is the engagement point for these models do you see a lot of teams actually setting up feedback loops to associates to be able to provide hey this is misaligned to ground truth and then that may trigger some retraining efforts as well too do you see a lot of feedback loops built in and what do they look like built in i haven't seen a single one yet i think that's like such a high level of ai and data maturity that you have that in place mm -hmm. that only a few companies probably are at that level and these are like the really big technological players and i haven't even seen a tool yet which builds something like that because you would entrust a company so many different components of your stack it has to have access to all of your data it has to have access to your models and basically it's often the the core value you're providing that would be in that tool and most companies don't want to to give that up so i don't see like any player coming into that space either and but that's exactly on the point what i'm trying to implement at most of the projects i'm doing is actually like just capturing all the data capture the input capture the output if necessary just sensitize it but that's the training data set you're building for the future and then for the next project you already have like such a massive data set in comparison that was produced in production which you just could go over label the good examples label the bad examples and do a fine-tuning job with that 
And that basically decreases the work you have to do because in most projects in the beginning, you first have to come up with a data set to do any fine tuning. Right. And with that, do you see folks actually leveraging synthetic data? Because we hear about the concept a lot of like folks leveraging synthetic data for the training aspect. In reality, do you see that pretty often or not so much? Not a single case yet. The synthetic data is, it's really complex to actually get it to a high quality. So I used a bit of synthetic data from a master thesis, but it took a lot of work to actually get the data to a quality where I like it. And also mm -hmm. it took me like a month going through the entire data set by hand and correcting all of the examples to a level of quality where I can use it for fine tuning. Mm -hmm. And with synthetic data, especially because we are talking about like text data most of, most of the times with yeah. LLMs, it's like very laborious to, to label them or to correct them because you have to read through all of the examples. And that's why it's mostly easier Build a basic prototype, use it internally if you don't want to push it to customers, and actually just use the tool on an ongoing basis and create a data set on your own. And just plug it into GPT-4. It may cost more, but you get quality responses most of the time. And through that, you can create a data asset which you can use and that you don't really have to rely on synthetic data. Yeah, and if I can connect some dots, because I know I've worked with Nick on some Gen AI and Nico, Nico on some Gen AI. So we use a lot of synthetic data for some of our enterprise clients to actually address some of the governance and sensitive data that we talked about earlier in the conversation. So we created like synthetic customer data, which is highly relational structured data. So it was pretty straightforward to create the synthetic data for. And then kind of what Nico's talking to, I think would be very hard because it's more like the natural conversations or how do people write real content like these much more complex strings or not not strings but i guess they are strings but you know series of words right which would be a lot harder to like synthetic or mock but we did see that be successful for a lot of companies that want to use like azure's open ai offering but they can't put real data production data in there yet until they prove the value so it's kind of like the chicken and egg in the enterprise of like is this worth the risk let's throw synthetic data in first to kind of get through and show the value of it. And then we can get through the IT kind of gates to that will let us actually use this in production to start generating some real value. So just wanted to kind of walk through that. And Nico, I'm kind of curious to hear your perspective too. Like how have you seen other people kind of manage this IT security issues or kind of get through those hurdles while proving value and showing that back to the business to kind of justify more opportunities around AI? Yeah, I think like with the synthetic data, you're basically capping the performance because the performance is capped by the quality of the data you're feeding into the model. And this can lead to an issue because most people are by now used to GPT-4 and really quality outputs. And if they now see like the performance of the model, which is a little bit like less performant than GPT-4, they don't really have the motivation to really build out the project. And in the end, you might be capped by that synthetic data, especially in the text domain, the impact the context has on the quality of the output is enormous. From information security perspective, that's often why you actually see use cases like a, docu a, doc a documentation bot or something like that, because you don't have to worry that much about anything leaking if you use like the OpenAI Azure model, where you have pretty good 
data security already. And also in your documentation, there shouldn't be so much or any private information in there besides like some employees who have written it. When it comes to customer data, I think you have to be way more cautious. And that's something where we really have to do like an assessment. How does the data look like? And you really have, you, there is no other option but going into the data and actually looking at it. How does the data look like? What information is in there? And just testing a few examples and looking at it. And often if it's customer data and you can't really if you wouldn't share it with like an external person, you shouldn't feed it into a closed source provider. And there is where you actually have to probably go with an open source model and deploy it on your own, just to basically demonstrate the value and try it out before you can add the functionality of sensitizing the data and removing the PII. Makes sense. Nico, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining our episode 12 of AI or Die. If folks want to get in touch with you, should they reach out to you on your LinkedIn or how would you prefer folks get in contact if they'd like to? Yeah, they can check out my LinkedIn. Also, homepage of my company, Eisbach, where we're doing most of the implementations for LLMs. Feel free to check it out. Thank you so much, Nico, for joining today. We really appreciate you coming on our episode 12. For listeners out there, we have 11 other episodes. If you want to go and subscribe or die or listen or die, we are on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to your podcasts as well. This was a great episode. Nico, Brennan, Reagan, thanks so much for doing this one. And we'll see everyone on the next one. Take care, everybody.